And here is the word of God. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. Heavenly Father, we ask that the Spirit of God would meet with us in his word today. We ask that the word of God would be life to us. It would be fresh water to our souls. We ask, Lord, that uh, the things that might be mysterious to us, particularly about life beyond the veil, this thin veil of life, will be made more clear and our hope more certain in Jesus Christ. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says that God has put eternity in every human heart. Wherever you go, whatever culture you look at around the world, Whether it's today or it's the sands of time long time ago, every culture has some idea about what life is like after death. The ancient book of the Egyptian dead is full of stories about life after death. When a famous Norseman would die, they would bury his horse with him so that he could ride on his steed into the afterlife. The Eskimos of Greenland, when they lose a child, they bury the dog with the child so that there is a guide for the child through the Iceland wasteland of the next world. Some of you might have noticed that last year there was a book that charted out at number one on the New York bestseller list. The title of that book was Heaven is for Real. It's about a three-year-old boy who has an appendix that bursts. Uh, There on the operating table, he supposedly died, went to heaven, and returned. He claimed to see Jesus Christ, Samson, John the Baptist, a grandfather that he had never met, and other people. Heaven is for real, went to press 22 times, and there's 1.5 million copies in circulation. Heaven is something that God has put in our hearts. The foremost authority on heaven is Jesus Christ. In the passage that I just read to you in your presence, Matthew 22, verse 23 through 33, Jesus explains a few realities of heaven. He doesn't say everything that needs to be said about heaven, 
but he wants to teach two significant truths about heaven. Now, the story takes place on Wednesday of Holy Week. Jesus is only three days away from going to the cross, where he'll be arrested, he will be tried, he will be beaten, and then he'll be crucified and died. It's Wednesday. His critics and his opponents are circling the wagons around him with three questions, three challenges. The first challenge is the poll tax. And Jesus answers, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. The second is the one I just read to you about marriage in heaven. And the third challenge is what is the greatest commandment? It's the second challenge that has our attention this morning. And it's in the second challenge that Jesus teaches us about heaven. Now, Jesus' adversaries, as we've learned in verse 23, are the Sadducees. Let's call them the here and now crowd. They scoffed at the notion of life after death. In their minds, you only go around once in life, so grab all the gusto you can now. It's very interesting that they were the ones in charge of the money changers in the outer court in the temple. They're the ones that had consolidated most of the Sanhedrin power into their own hands. They were the here and now bunch, and they were very, very wealthy. They did not believe that there would be an afterlife. They believed when you die, game over, no afterlife, no resurrection. So they come to Jesus with this ridiculous question. It's based on a Leverite law found in Leviticus about a woman whose husband dies. And in order to keep the land in the family, she is supposed to be married to the brother of the husband that died. And they said this happened seven times and finally the wife dies. And now who is she married to in heaven? Jesus tells them that they are wrong. And he tells them two truths about heaven. These two truths occupy our attention this morning. And they give to us energy for living today and hope for the life beyond the grave. So is there a hereafter? Jesus in this text of scripture says there is a heaven, but it's not like life on earth. Look at verse 30 of your text. Verse 30, Jesus answers them. He says, you're mistaken, not understanding the scriptures. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. You do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God. Then verse 30, he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, Jesus is not speaking about a particular event in this moment. The event of the resurrection of the body that you'll read in First Thessalonians 5, 1 Corinthians 15, but rather he is speaking of a sphere of existence where the resurrected life is lived out. That in the sphere of living the resurrected life, we will be in heaven. He does not describe what our bodies will be like. He doesn't describe what the scenery is like or what the activities of heaven look like. Instead, he makes this simple short statement. We will be like angels in heaven. What is Jesus meaning here at this point in the conversation? I want you to see in verse 30 that he puts into position two truths, marriage and angels. And he wants us to make, using our intellect, to make a connection between the two. Marriage is about relationship, is it not? That like angels in this text means that heaven will be like 
relationships like the angels enjoy. For a moment, you married couples think about this. On earth, our most intimate relationship that we have with another human being is our spouse. God ordained marriage as communion, uh, sexual union, procreation, partly to fulfill the uh, mandate given to Adam, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Around that marriage union, we put a sacred wall. It's carefully guarded and protected that no one else comes in to that marriage relationship. It's so significant in its intimacy. The purposes for which marriage was created, communion, sexual activity in, in, the, in marriage, and as well as procreation, will cease to exist in heaven. But rather, we will be in a relationship with one another that is like the relationship among the angels. All of us have known those moments of deep, close friendship with another human being. Marriage or heaven is better. In our marriages, we've had moments of deep and restful love with our spouse. Heaven is better. Like what the angels enjoy in heaven at this very moment, our relationships in heaven will be transparent and honest. We'll have unguarded hearts, no fear of betrayal or hurt. In heaven, the insecurities that we carry with us, even in those close relationships, will be banished. There'll be perfect, trusting love surrounding us. If you talk to the youth today, people in my daughter's age group, she's 29 years old, they'll tell you that what they're looking for is significant, authentic relationships, where there's this honesty and transparency in their discussions and in their communications with one another. The very best of those kinds of relationships pale in light of what we will experience in glory. Deep, personal, perfect unity, perfect friendship, perfect relationships will be in glory. Some people, usually in a discussion like this, will always ask this question, and it's an appropriate question. Will I be able to recognize my loved ones when I get to glory? That's a, that's a question we all ask. Like when, I, when I filter out of this life, you know, kiss the kiss the uh, the farm goodbye and kick the bucket and enter into the into heaven. Will I be able to recognize my loved ones? The Bible tells us that when we leave this world, we shall behold Jesus face to face. There'll be no doubt about who's standing right in front of us. When the, Jesus was transfigured into his pre-incarnate glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter somehow intuitively knew that the two people talking to Jesus was Moses and Elijah. When John in Revelation is taken up into heaven, he sees Jesus and he knows that it's Jesus. And he sees a multitude of believers that have loved Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, when he appeared to his disciples, those 40 days before he ascended into heaven, the disciples knew who it was. And at first they were a little skittish. Is this a ghost? Jesus invited them to touch his body, put, it, put their fingers into his prints. He says, I have flesh and blood. Of course, it's a flesh and blood that we don't know about yet, but they knew that it was Jesus. We will recognize our family and friends in Christ. 
all the hurts and all the misunderstandings will fade away and be forgotten. Perfect love, perfect unity, perfect friendship, perfect relationships that far exceed anything we've ever known here on this earth. Jesus says, you will be like angels. That's the first truth that Jesus communicates about heaven. The second truth is really more of a scriptural statement that underpinning the truth of the resurrection is the truth of God. The second truth I want you to see in this text in verses 30, in verse 30, 31 and 32 is this. There is going to be a resurrection. Jesus validates the resurrection by appealing to the scriptures. Look at verse 31. Look at the first two words. But regarding that little phrase there says Jesus is changing this topic. He's moving away from the specific question of is there marriage in heaven? No, we'll be like angels to now specifically to address the scriptural underpinnings for the resurrection. He shows the Sadducees that they misunderstood the scriptures. Now, let me give you a little information on the Sadducees. They believe that the only books in the Bible that were the valid word of God was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. That's all the Sadducees believed were the Word of God. And they com- concluded in their close study of those five books that there was no mention of the resurrection. And thus they dismissed the resurrection out of hand. But Jesus takes them back to one of the books they appealed to, namely Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, a book they trusted. So in verse 32 of Matthew 22, Jesus says, quoting Exodus 3, 6, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, that's a direct quote from the text, Exodus 3, 6. Then he gives commentary. End of verse 32. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So in the first part of verse 32, he quotes verbatim Exodus 3, 6. At the end of verse 32, he gives his commentary. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Now you say, what kind of impact did these words have on the people that were standing there listening to this conversation? I want you to see the impact that it had. Verse 33. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. It means to be amazed. It means to be overwhelmed at his teaching. It was like a collective wow arose from the crowd. (gasps) Amazing. This was the response of the crowd. But look at the response in verse 34 of his critics. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees after he spoke, verse 32, the critics were silent. They, too, were stunned by the depth of Jesus' teaching and the simplicity of that teaching. I don't know if this is a true story, but I sure like the story and whatever I can pull it out, I like to share it. Vladimir Horowitz was, is considered the greatest concert pianist that ever that ever lived. And uh, he was being asked one time if if the sign that he had done well in his performance was the thunderous applause that he would get. And you got to remember, this is a guy that when he came to practice, uh, they would open up the uh, the concert hall for people to hear that practice. Uh, he would get an applause as he walked in 
to the piano. He would get thunderous applauses at his practices. This is, this is a great pianist. So, so the guy's asking Horowitz, I mean, is it when you get that applause, is it a sign that you've really done a great performance? Vladimir Horowitz said, no, it's the silence when people don't applaud at all. Then I know I've delivered a great performance. Jesus isn't performance based. But if the silence of his critics tells us anything, Jesus just lobbed a perfect ten uh, to his critics into the crowd. So what is it that Jesus said that was so amazing to the multitudes that they went, ah, wow, and that the silence became silent? Here's what it is. Jesus appealed to a passage in the Old Testament where God made a covenant with his people, beginning with Moses, that he would be the people of, for, the, for the Israelites. The statement, he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, speaks of God's covenanting relationship. There's the word again, relationships. Heaven, what's heaven? Relationships. What's in the Trinity? God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? Relationships. What did Jesus say? It's good for him to go because if he goes, he will send back the spirit of God. If you believe on me and have faith in me, my father and I shall do what? Make our abode in you. It's about relationships. God, in his whole redemptive purposes, was designing it to bring us back into relationship with him. When Adam and Eve walked out of the garden, turning their back on him, God then spent the next three millennium bringing us back to himself. Hatching a plan of perfect redemption through the person of Jesus Christ so they can bring us back in relationship. So there at Mount Sinai, before that burning bush, God says, Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Jesus then comments and says, you know what, what the father was saying? He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham is alive. Isaac is alive. Jacob is alive. He is the God of relationship. Now, here is bottom line thinking. Because God enters into a covenant relationship with us in the Old Testament, it was through the law. In the New Testament, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. God is then bound to his people forever to fulfill the covenant, to be their God in this life, in the face of death and in the life to come. Second Corinthians five, eight, you know, these these are verses that I've as a pastor, you're talking with people that are dying and people are getting ready to go meet their their savior. And, and so these texts I've read so many times and now they're kind of in my heart. Second Corinthians five, eight, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. God has made a commitment, bound himself to us to see us through the passageway of death into his very presence. I love this passage, John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And I'll come back for you so that where I am, you may be also. 
One of the guys says, well, how, how's the way is it that we can get to you? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. First John fifteen fifty two. in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, the dead in Christ shall rise. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend with the shout of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those who are still alive when he comes shall be raised as well. The foremost authority on heaven is Jesus Christ. And he declares without equivocation, there is life beyond this life. There is a resurrection now, what I've just done is simply explain the text to you. I've lifted up the text and explained and explored a little bit. But I want to go to four points of application that I believe that naturally derive from what we've just learned, Jesus' teaching on heaven. Here's application point number one. Know God's word. The tragic mistake of the Sadducees is that they misunderstood Scripture uh, or they had uh, been in error uh, as to what the scriptures taught. To avoid error or misunderstanding, we need to know what the word of God says. We should ask, as you know, if you've been around the free church for very long, the old free church people used to say, where stands it written? What saith the word? Where does it say in God's word? Scripture is light in life to every believer. That old smarmy, slippery serpent was in tempting Jesus Christ. And he said, Jesus, you're hungry. Why don't you turn the, the stones into bread? And Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage, actually from the, from the Pentateuch. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In James chapter 1, verse 21, James tells us in a spirit of humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Psalm 119 tells us that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If we hope to avoid error in thinking about things like heaven, we need to know what the scriptures teach. And if we hope to kindle a hope in the life after this life, we need to know what the word teaches. So, know God's word. Application point number two. Live today in light of heaven. The light of heaven could be seen in everything Jesus was doing. Can you imagine this? It's Wednesday, the Wednesday of Holy Week. In three days, Jesus will be arrested. Jesus will be tried. He'll be beaten. He'll go to the cross and he'll die. And what's he doing on Wednesday? He's talking and teaching and sharing and loving. He's encouraging He's got eternity just around the corner for him. But what's he doing? Living in light of eternity. John Stott tells about a young man who found a five dollar bill one day when he was walking down the streets. And after that, he never lifted up his eyes, always looking down to see what he could find in the gutters. Well, over the course of years, he found twenty nine thousand five hundred and sixteen buttons, fifty four thousand one hundred and seventy two pins. Twelve cents, a bent back, and a miserly, miserable disposition. Think what he lost. He could, see, he could not see the radiance of the sunlight, or the sheen of the stars, the smile on the face of his friends, or the blossoms of springtime, for his eyes were always in the gutter. Stott says, there are too many Christians like that. 
We have important duties on earth, but we must never allow them to preoccupy us in such a way that we forget who we are and where we are going. Live today in light of heaven that is coming to us. That's application number two. Application point number three. And I really love this. If I take off and I just start flying at 12,000 feet, you'll understand. Live the Christian life in the power of the resurrection. Well, you say, wait a minute. The resurrection is an event yet to come. Not so. I mean, yes, it's true. But yet there is a reality of resurrection power to be experienced by believers today. Jesus' res- the resurrection that we are going to experience is rooted and grounded in Jesus' resurrection, of which it says in 1 Corinthians, he is the first fruits. When Jesus rose from the grave three days after he died on the cross and was buried, there was a transference of power that took place. The power that raised Jesus' body from the grave was a power that was given to believers to live on each and every day of their life in this world in anticipation for the resurrection that is soon to come upon us. This is an amazing reality. When we called upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we received resurrection power through the Holy Spirit. It means that our ordinary lives are imbued with divine power. So Romans chapter 6 says, shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? No, may it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that when you died to Christ, you were buried with Christ? So that now you might live your life in the power of the resurrection, in the likeness of Jesus' resurrection. Paul takes us to a place where we need to go as believers in the here and now. In Philippians chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings that I might attain to the resurrection. In the Christian life, we have divine power to live. So live today in the life of the resurrection power. And finally, this is my fourth point of application. Don't fear Death. Don't fear death. Death is the great enemy of every believer. We're terrified by the thoughts of growing old and aging. We're watching our parents. Some of us are watching our parents get to that point where they'll soon pass from the scene. And occasionally on a cold, damp day, we can feel death in our bones. Jesus tells us that life continues beyond the veil of this life. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, then will come the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. And then in verse 56, he asks the rhetorical question, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? But we are triumphant in Christ Jesus. I, you know, this is kind of a sick, morbid thing. And I shared this with the navigators class back in uh, October but, but periodically, I'll sit, I'll lay on my bed and imagine myself getting ready to die and try to figure out what that's going to be like. A little fear, a little sadness to say goodbye, saying the last words that I'll say to my wife in this life, last words I'll say to my children. And I want to turn the corner in that moment and see in front of me 
my Savior, who is beckoning me to come home. And I want to be calmed by the fact that while death is hanging into the corner, it has been gutted of its power. And like an old lion that's had its fangs and claws removed, death has no more power over me. Jesus says, those who believe in him shall be snatched from death. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to just somehow be translated, hit the elevator button, go up to the 13th floor. But it means that that fear and the dread of death is no longer there for the believer. It's like, bring it on. Bring it on, death. You think you have control of me? Ha ha. I have a savior that is guaranteed that I shall see him face to face. We love the Chronicles of Narnia in the co-house. I've read the Chronicles of Narnia out loud to my kids. I don't know how many times. I almost got it memorized. And uh, there is the last book that's called The Last Battle. And at the very end of the last battle, uh, as it's closing out the story, the children, Peter, Edmund, and Lucy, are standing in front of Aslan, who is a type of Christ. And Aslan says, you do not seem as happy as I expected you to be. Well, Lucy says, well, we have to go back to our earth, to our world, to our time. And Aslan says, well, do you not know what has happened? And C.S. Lewis says, suddenly the hearts of the children leapt with excitement and a wildness arose in their hearts. And Aslan says, do you not remember there was a railroad accident? And you are, as you say, in the shadowlands of your world, now dead. And then he says these words. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you say, dead. But the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. When you come to die, you will see Jesus face to face. The term is over. When he takes his hands and washes the tears from your face, the holiday has begun. And when you are gathered with the multitude of believers and all those angelic hosts that we don't barely understand, the morning has come. And as John Newton said, after we've been there 10,000 years, it will dawn on us. Didn't we just begin this story? It will go on and on and on forever. Jesus, the foremost authority on heaven, has told us there is a heaven, but it's not like anything you and I have ever experienced. It's about a relationship with a multitude of God, people that love God. And there is a resurrection that is coming. Heavenly Father, just for a moment, I would just be quiet before you, not saying anything, not praying anything. Perhaps, Father, we can actually hear the songs of heaven in our heart. You have put eternity in our hearts. And we who are in Jesus Christ know with certainty that there's a day of glory that's coming for us. 
It's exciting to be able to live our lives each day for the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that we're going to move out of this plane of existence into one that's eternal. Lord Jesus, um, take that hope and sear it in our hearts. Help us to grip the hope. Never to lose the hope. And if right now there are people that find that the kindling heat of heaven is gone out, light a fire through the words of Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we just say it, we love you, that you have made a commitment, you've bound yourself to us, even through death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.